This is the last Sunday of this year, and it's a Sunday where we can look back on the past, we can look at the year behind us, and as we mentioned in our prayer, we can see that God's hand has been upon us. He has helped us through tough, tough times, and he has blessed us with good times. And uh, because of that, we can come together this day and say, thank you, God, for 2015 and for your presence with us in it. And knowing that he has been with us in the past, we know that he's with us as we go forward. And this is a time when many people start thinking about what their New Year's resolutions are going to be. And I'm not going to go through a list of all the silly things that people do, but you know, usually what people decide to do is those things that are going to make a difference for good in their lives for the next year. And I don't know if you've made any, and some people think it's just superstition, and just, let's face it, uh, most of your, how many of you made resolutions last year? Let's see your hands. Oh, okay. One of, okay, we have a bunch of realists here with us this morning. For those of you who are going to be listening to this later, not one hand went up in the entire congregation. That's good. But uh, let me tell you that uh, that's, that's good because usually, you know, it's something like, I'm going to lose 10 pounds or I'm going to uh, get in better shape. You know, and then six weeks later, all that's just out the window. But uh, this morning, I want us to, uh, to look at something that I hope will help shape our thinking about this coming year. This passage has been haunting me. One particular line in it, this is in Second Timothy, the third chapter, where it talks about the last days. And let's face it. Whenever you look around, you can see that the Lord's return is imminent. He's closer today. His return is closer today than ever. He said there'd be earthquakes and pestilences and uh, wars and rumors of wars and uh, all of these different things. And they are happening all around us. I'd never heard the word tsunami until a few years ago. And uh, things are happening just one after the other. And it seems like, just like he said, it's going to be like the pangs of childbirth. Things are getting closer and closer together. And that's just right out of the Bible. And it just confirms that God's word is true. And the thing is, if that part, if the bad part or what appears to be bad is confirmed as true, it means the good part is true as well. And so we can take heart. In fact, he told us when we saw these things happening to look up because our redemption was drawing near. But he's talking about one particular group of people in particular that I want us to talk about. And that is, uh, he's at the end of the list of all the different things, says, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power, holding to the form of godliness, the shape of godliness. The word is the, for in the Greek is the same word that we get the word 
morphology from. It's a word that has to do with shape, the shape of things. Uh, so anyway, it means they have a shape or they have a form, an outward appearance of godliness, but they deny the power of godliness. Now, he's talking about believers. He's talking about people that name the name of Christ. And so if you have just the form of something, that means you don't have the insides. You don't have the substance, the thing that's really supposed to make a difference. And in the church, it's the power of God at work in our lives that's supposed to be making a difference. And yet we see, if, if you'll read most denominations' newsletters these, day, these days, you'll see in our denomination also, you'll see in, in the Methodist Church, we do wonderful things all the time. Malaria has nearly been stamped out in some areas because we've provided nets to go over uh, sleeping uh, uh, facilities and, and things like that. Uh, where there's different things, we, we provide food. The United Methodist Committee on Relief will be out helping these hurricane, these, these tornado victims uh, very, very soon. And the wonderful thing is whatever we give to the United Methodist Committee on Relief, every bit of the money goes to help the people. None of it is take, none of it goes into uh, overhead like a lot of other agencies that you give to because our apportionments pay for the foundation so that all the money that we give to a specific cause can go to help with that cause. And that's good. That's good. But whenever I read our newsletter, not our, not our church newsletter, Claire, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, what I'm talking about is uh, the Methodist communicator, the Methodist reporter and all. You'll see wonderful things that we have done and are doing, but it's always hollow. There's always something missing. And if you haven't looked at one lately, I encourage you to, because what's missing is any mention of the power of God. Nobody even pays any attention to the fact that there is a power at work in this world. There's a power of good, there's a power of evil, and we are at work uh, going about our, our Lord's business, but he works with us. And what really grieves me is we never see things like rejoicing over how many souls have been saved, how many uh, have, uh, have been brought under conviction of sin and turned from it and are now living under the transforming power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We never see things like that reported because those things are just understood. I can remember one time back when I was first getting started in ministry, we had an evangelism seminar and a dear friend of mine got up and he said, okay, what does evangelism mean? And uh, somebody said, it means go, it means share, it means this. And preacher after preacher gave these words and he just about had that board full. And I lifted up my hand and I said, it bothers me if there's one thing missing from that board and that's Jesus. And they said, oh, 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 he's understood. Well, you know, he can be understood right out of the picture. We're suppo he's supposed to be number one 
How do you understand him out of the picture? But that's what we do. And so uh, we can wind up in this form of religion and deny the power thereof, the form of godliness. Now, what are some of the things that make up the form of God? He's talking about certain people, and these people, they are more than likely the first form of godly of godliness would be baptism and communion, and then attending worship services, and then uh, speaking religiously, you know, using the right lingo when you talk, uh, and talking about the Bible, uh, uh, talking about the church. Attending worship services, not using uh, profanity or vulgar speech, uh, working within the church. You know, all of these things we can do and not have the power of the Lord involved with us and not availing ourselves of his power. We can do all these things and deny even that there is such a thing as the power of God. Now, these things are all good. Having the form, religion, godliness has a form, but is there anything in it? That's just it. If it's hollow, we need to do something else. And I can remember I got getting to that place in my life where I saw this hollowness in religiosity. And I began to think, well, all the main religions were, they must have just been all concocted by humanity to uh, cope with our mortality and to give us some rules. Hell's a pretty good deterrent, or used to be. People don't care much about that anymore. Uh, but there's so many things that, uh, I, I, because I didn't see any power in the church. I saw no spiritual reality in the church. And in the churches I was attending, no one talked about the fact that God can help you. God can turn your life around. God can make a difference for the good where no one and no thing else can. And I nearly reasoned God out of existence. And my profession back then was the claims profession, which was a closed world, cause and effect. And there was no place for God. Acts of God were things like uh, tornadoes and earthquakes and things like that. That's what in the insurance lingo is referred to as acts of God. No changes in people's lives. No hope coming to people who were in despair. Nothing like that. It was all relegated to psychology and to uh, uh, the power of positive thinking and all that sort of thing. But no place, anything like we see as far as the power of God in Scripture at work in people's lives. All these things, these external things I've been talking about, like I say, they are good and they're supposed to be a manifestation from an inner uh, thing that's going on within us, from a spiritual reality that's within us. But somehow, these people Paul is talking about have missed that. So how did they come to have the form without the power? Well, first of all, they can uh, get that way because of uh, heredity. Maybe they were born into the church 
They were baptized as an infant. They were brought up being told, you're a child of God. You're a, you're a good little girl. You're a good little boy. You're God's child. And so they are brought up being told that they are God's child. And yet they have never come to the place where they have had to repent of their sin and invite Jesus into their hearts. They haven't come to the place where they've had to receive the forgiveness that's offered through the cross. They've never appropriated personally for their personal sin of what Jesus did for them on the cross. And if you're at that point, then you can have the form, but never have experienced the power that comes from having him at work in your lives. Let's face it. God has no grandchildren. All he has are children. And I can speak to that because my my forebears were the ones that started the first Methodist meetings in the state of Texas. Uh, in their, let's see, what was his name? Uh, now I can't remember my own relatives' names now. Uh, but uh, Samuel Doak McMahon had a con- it began with a conversion experience. He'd heard a preacher over in Louisiana, and he was riding along Aish Bayou, and he was convicted. And he got down off his horse and got on his knees, and he gave his life to the Lord. And then he invited, he asked the Methodist, he invited a Methodist circuit rider to come over and start holding services in his home. And they did. And that was the beginning of the first congregation, according to some accounts, uh, in the state of Texas, while it was still a part of Mexico. And uh, anyway, I won't go into any more. But my grandma used to drag me up there and say, you know, this is where Samuel Doak's buried and this is your heritage. And it dawned on me when I got grown, my heritage didn't save me. My heritage was not, go- heritage was not going to save me. But I've been brought up just like all these people that Paul is talking about, that it's just hereditary. They're just brought up in it and uh, they've never really applied what they've grown up in. So uh, the thing is, it's not a generational thing. It's regeneration that makes a difference in a person's life. In fact, in John, uh, the first chapter, the 11th through the 13th verses say this. This is John 1, 11 through 13. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now listen to this. Who were born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's not just a matter of being good. It's not a matter of being in the right family. It's a matter of being brought into his family through the precious blood of Jesus. And we can be brought up and miss that. Some people have been forced into it by their surroundings. 
uh, and by their circumstances. They might have been just following along and all of a sudden their friends started uh, being baptized and uh, professing their faith. So they just went along with the crowd and did what everybody else was doing. But it had not no real inner substance to it. They were just doing what everybody else was doing. And some people, it comes about because it's the respectable thing to do is to belong to a church. And if you're a good person, this is what you do. And this is a way to be a good person. And they want to be a good person. Others find it a way to fit into their community, to be a part of their community. Others do it because they do have an uneasiness about what might lie on the other side of this life. And so they get involved in church to ease their conscience and to feel good good about themselves. And they can wind up uh, being involved in things and doing things and be like the Pharisee who knelt there by the public and said, well, God, I thank you. I'm not as bad as that guy. I do this and I do this and I do that. And still not have his power at work within them. And so what is this power that they deny? It's the power, first of all, of salvation. It's the power of being saved from our sin. And even more than that, being saved from judgment. This is something we don't talk about much anymore. And yet the church began, the Methodist church began when a group of people came up to John Wesley uh, who feared and were concerning, and they wanted to flee the wrath to come. They knew that they were not right with God, and they knew that one day they were going to stand before him. And because of that, they wanted to be make sure that they were right with God. And it's because of that, and because they were so convicted of their sin, that he started uh, the classes so that they could get together, hold each other accountable, and help each other to grow in their Christian walk. So first and foremost, it's the power of salvation. Next, the power to transform. Today, people are trying, they're arguing uh, for certain sinful lifestyles, saying, well, God made them that way. You know, God made us all with a sinful nature. He didn't make us with a sinful nature. He gave us, he gave, made us with the freedom to choose and we can choose which way we're going to go. God didn't make us one way or another as far as that, except he did give us the power to choose him over sin. And whenever we choose to go the wrong way, when we go against him, then we're going to have to face him about that one of these days. And so uh, he, but the thing is, we deny, we deny the fact that he can transform a person. He can transform someone who has been addicted. He can transform someone who has uh, been caught up in the wrong thing. And his power can make them what they were created to be in the first place. His power can help them to be that person that they were created to be and not who they have been choosing to be not who they have been uh, guided into by other people to be. The power to provide, the power to deliver, the power to make relationships what they should be, the power to meet your needs, 
without you having to do something wrong to get your needs met, the power to heal, the power to change the course of history in response to your prayer. There's so much power that's available to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet so many people miss out on this. Now, there are other reasons why, other ways that people wind up uh, not being those people that embrace his power at work in their lives. And this gets around to my resolution here that I want to share with you. First of all, there are those that have never really known the Lord. Then secondly, there are those who have known him, who at one point were convicted and they asked the Lord to forgive their sins. They received the forgiveness that he offered. They were washed. They were cleansed. They were made right with him. And it was joyful. But then after a while, after the newness wore off, then something came up and they sinned. And then they thought, oh God, I'm so sorry. And they repent. They receive his forgiveness. And then they do it again. And it's, oh God, I'm so sorry. And then they do it again. It's, oh God, I'm sorry. And then they do it again. And sorry about that, God. And then they do it again. Hey God, we'll get together about this sometime. And then you see, it doesn't happen overnight. But gradually, gradually, it doesn't, it's not such a big deal. And they drift further and further and further away. And the next thing you know, they are so far from God, they don't even know if he exists. They don't know if he ever really did in their lives. And they are far from him. And again, they become those power who may still be going to church because it's what they do, but they deny the power thereof. And then there are those who have... uh, drifted away just because of uh, just the busyness of life. And I catch myself from time to time uh, in the busyness of life, being distracted from taking time for him. And you can just get so busy and caught up in, in other things that your prayer life goes out the window. You just kind of run off and leave God. There's a tribe in Africa that sometimes they'll be walking along and they'll just sit down on the ground. And missionary asked this guy what he was doing one day. He said, I'm waiting for my soul to catch up with my body. And that's what we all need to do every now and then. We can run away from God, not just like running, chugga, chug, chug, trying to get away from him. But we can just be running and running and just leave him behind and forget about him and still be going to church on Sunday and have the form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. And then there's one more really, really sneaky thing that the enemy uses. And it's very subtle. And it's one of the things that I have to struggle with from time to time. You see, I was uh, I was brought up in a, a home where I was physically and verbally abused. And I was uh, told how stupid and dumb I was so many times. And there was one time I can remember whenever I was about nine years old and I was asking my dad to teach me how to throw the ball and how to catch. And so he went around on the side of the station. He threw the ball at me a couple of times and I couldn't catch it. And uh, he had me try to throw it. I couldn't throw it. And instead of teaching me how, 
which is what I'd asked him to do, he goes stomping off, yelling over his shoulder how dumb and stupid I was because I just couldn't do these things. That was just a part of my life, that sort of stuff. That was a, a lighter thing. But it was a major thing in the moment of a little tender-hearted boy because I stood there with my glove on thinking, oh boy, my dad's going to do something with me. Oh boy, I'm going to learn how to do this. And here he is Tell me how dumb and stupid I am because I can't. I remember standing there on the dirt road and my eyes with tears welling up in them because what he was saying hurt. And I was so disappointed that he wasn't going to teach me. And I remember standing there thinking, this isn't right. This isn't right. I ask you to teach me how, not tell me how dumb I was because I couldn't do it. And as a little nine-year-old boy, it dawned on me. Some things dawned on me. I thought, well... The first thing I thought was, well, I can see now I can't count on you. And I'm not ever going to count on you for anything ever again. I'm not going to count on you to teach me anything or do anything for me. I'll just have to take care of myself. And then the second thing I thought was, you're never going to make me cry again. And I began putting up a wall to keep out the pain. And I got real good at putting up walls. And the thing about walls is they are not discriminatory. When you put up a wall to keep yourself from the pain of other people, you also, you wall out the good that can come from other people as well. And you wall out our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, I went through some, the Lord brought me to a place to where the walls came down one night after I was grown. And I remember thinking, Lord, if I'm going to live my life for you, I'm going to wind up making myself vulnerable and I might get hurt because I'm going to have to let down these walls and that means other people can get in. And if I stick my neck out, somebody might chop it. And he said, yeah, I know. 11 out of 12 isn't bad. And I knew what he meant. You know, he called 11, He called 12 men to follow him. And he shared his life deeply with 12 people. One of them betrayed him. What if Jesus had barred them all and didn't want to get hurt? But the thing is, what I saw is that that's about the ratio. If you are real with people and are really you and share yourself with other people, you're going to have some joys and wonderful things with other people. And every now and then you're going to get hurt. But what's happened recently is I've discovered that uh, I uh, found out as I was looking at this passage, it dawned on me, I'm still doing the right things, but I'm not sensing his power and his presence with me. Lord, what has happened? And he showed me. I started putting the walls back up. Through the years, I have uh, been betrayed. I have been hurt. I have been disappointed. I've had the rug pulled out from under me in life. I have had many painful things happen to me and done to me just in the course of life. And if you're honest, you must admit that you have to. Well, my way of handling that is just to close the door of my heart. And whenever I do that, I'm insulated. I can just pull into myself and be kind of numb to the world. 
But whenever you're making yourself numb to the pain of the world, you're making yourself numb to his presence because you see he is out there with all those other people, even the ones that can hurt you. That's where he is. He's a part of this world, the real world. And if you close that door to your heart and let the walls be thick, you're going to miss the joys of life and you're going to miss his presence and his power at work in your life. And his power makes all the difference in the world. His power can help you through the pain. His power can help you handle those hurts and that pain in the right way instead of handling them on your own in the wrong way. And so my New Year's resolution is to make sure that I keep the door of my heart open wide. You know, there's one place in Scripture I just noticed last night as I was falling to sleep where Jesus is uh, talking about, they ask him, what's the kingdom of God like? And he says, it's like uh, the, the head of the house. So the kingdom of God's like this. It's found in Luke. In fact, let me read it to you. Let me get it right. It says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house goes up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, Did we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, you evil doers. There's going to come a time whenever the door to the kingdom of God is going to be shut to us. And he's saying, we've got to be sure that we have gotten inside before the door shuts. Now, notice what the people say. They say, we ate and drank in your presence. That's Holy Communion. And there are those that hold to the efficacy of the sacraments, they call it. That it's not anything that you do, that the sacraments themselves and partaking of them is what saves you. And that's not right. You see, you can eat and drink in his presence. You can have the form of godliness and not have his power. And said, and uh, you taught in our streets. We sat through so many boring sermons, Lord. And that doesn't count for anything. He said, I don't even know where you're from. Do you see? It's not the outward things that we do. There's another door that's written. And then Jesus, there's another door that's spoken of at the very end of the book of the Bible. In the, uh, it's the third chapter of Revelation, the uh, 20th verse. And Jesus is at this point is talking to the lukewarm church, the church of Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's talking to the church. He's not talking to, to the lost. He's talking to the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. My resolution is to make sure that the door of my heart stays open. And in doing so, I expose myself 
to the pain of the outside world, but I also avail myself to the power of Christ to be at work with me in this world. May that be your resolution as well. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.